last time I talked to you about what's happened in the world since Helen channeled this material. At least what I've noticed has been happening and the people that I know uh, who I've talked to seem to be noticing the same thing. And that is that God seems to be speaking very specifically to quite a large number of people. Since talking to you and since reading a couple of the, uh, the lovely letters that uh, the girl in Minnesota received, another woman called me, Pennsylvania someplace, um, and she said, uh, she said, now I was raised a Jew, and uh, suddenly, I, she said, I, I married a, uh, a Hindu monk. <laughs> and she said, here I was in the monastery, I was the wife of the guru, and suddenly Jesus starts saying, I have a message for so-and-so, and I have a message for this person, and so forth. She said, my husband was away from the monastery at that time. And I would be told to go up, walk up to so-and-so and, and that there was a message for them. Well, she said, I wasn't participating in all the things that you were supposed to do there. But they were forgiving me because I was the wife of the guru. But when I would open my mouth and these incredibly beautiful things would come out, uh, the people there began to think I was memorizing some spiritual text at night and then reciting it. She said, when my husband came back, in his presence this happened again. There was another person there who was at the monastery. Suddenly I found myself being urged to tell this individual that I had a message for him. I gave the message, and in the course of the message, I used the phrase without knowing why I was using it. And that is when the fish shall swallow their tails. And this man's eyes got very large. And he said, uh, he said, that is a secret phrase that is passed on from guru to guru. It has never been written down. My guru told me that. So suddenly they realized that she hadn't been memorizing anything. But the reason that she was calling me was, uh, she said that she felt very badly about what was happening because she had been raised a Jew and that she had the distinct suspicion that this was Jesus. <coughs> she said never had she been told to write anything down. Always the way it had come to her was simply to give a message to someone. And the message would always incorporate something that the individual would know that no one else knew. And it would be extremely helpful to them. Now, as I, as I say, I, I have something like this happen almost once a week. Someone calls me with another story like this. So if I'm receiving this kind of information, I'm, I'm sure that there are hundreds of other people who are being called upon to give assurance that the individual has not gone crazy. Now, one message that I 
um, that was given to someone for me appeared to indicate very uh, decidedly that now the time had come for God's teachers to form a community of love. And we talked a little bit about this last time, that this is the time in which everyone had predicted it was going to happen. Now, no one was sure exactly what it would be, but that A Course in Miracles had said that it was simply the turnaround, that it had taken us millions of years to get to this point, and now we would be walking back toward God, and that it would take us millions of years to get back to God. But I also said that the Course said that there could be, and would be, collapses in time that would shorten the journey. And that no one needed to be distressed about this because time was not an absolute. So I'm convinced that this, this very thing is happening. That God's teachers are being called. That now is the time. And along with this, uh, message was also an indication that uh, in not too distant future there would be a lot of ridicule about this. And of course it's obvious why there would be. It seems like listening for guidance is a way of practicing insanity. It seems like, doesn't it? It seems like we're triggering uh, schizophrenic dissociation or something. Uh, because uh, we know that Hitler heard a voice. We know Son of Sam heard a voice, and so forth. And, of course, that's the only voice there is to hear, isn't there? <laughs> the question, of course, will eventually be asked, is it insane to hear the voice of God, or is it insane to not hear the voice of God? That question will be asked deeply and honestly by everyone in his heart. Is it really crazy that God speaks to me? Or was I crazy before to think that he didn't? So let me read uh, the section from the text today that constitutes uh, half of what we were going to discuss. Uh, runs from page, starts at the bottom of page four and runs to the top of page six. It's about a page and a half long. And let me add um, this warning. This is talking about structure. This is, the, this is how things are structured. And the temptation is, whenever we read how things are structured, to switch our goal from having the peace of God and giving the peace of God to others, to obtaining knowledge. Now, I'm not using the word knowledge in the way that the Course uses it. The Course uses the word knowledge as the absolute state of God. But acquiring information can easily become our goal. And we think we have actually made an advance because we have somehow internalized uh, the structure. But along with the structure has always come the statement that 
The structure itself is not completely accurate. It is simply the most helpful way to look at it at this time. So in discussing this structure, there may appear to be a conflict with other metaphysicians. Uh, Joel Goldsmith, for example. Because many of the metaphysicians talked about God as simply one thing. And the Course says that God is simply one thing. But it is quite clear that we do believe that there's more than one thing going on. And we have asked to be given something to understand what is going on, some way. My uh, little boy is two and a half, and those of you who've had a child that age, up to around four or something like that, four and a half, know that uh, children just go between fantasy and what we call reality, just with no hitch whatsoever. And recently he got a, one of these little uh, uh, traffic patrol cars, battery-operated, looks like police cars, which he goes all around the house. And you'll be sitting there and nice, peaceful day, and suddenly he'll say, Daddy, look, look! And he'll say, gosh, the house is throwing, you know, house on fire or something. The gorilla has escaped. <laughs> he gets on his, uh, his cop car, you know, and he races over and he puts the gorilla back in the zoo. You know. And, uh, <laughs> now, what an adult does to a child is a, 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 what, a, what a compassionate, sensitive parent does to a child is the mother will explain in terms that the child can understand what's happening. So, for example, last night when it was time for him to go to bed, the, uh, the gorilla escaped and got in his bed, he said, not wanting to go to bed. <laughs> and so there was much discussion about the gorilla in his bed. So what Gail did is... Uh, she said, I'll take care of it. I'll let me take care of this. You stay out here. So she opened the door to his room and so forth, and she came back out, and she said, the gorilla is now gone. I chased him off. Now, see, she didn't say, there isn't any gorilla in your bed. That would not have worked. Uh, because just that morning, he'd given me a little towel, which he's, he, when he first picked up the towel, he looked at it for a second, and then he told me it was a baby. And, but there was this little smirk on his face, you know, like he really knew this wasn't a baby. But after about two or three minutes of the baby thing, this was a baby. You know, and uh, so I had the baby. I was supposed to do the baby while he ran back and forth on his cop car, you know, putting animals back in the zoo. And at one point, I thought he'd forgotten about the baby, and I tossed the towel. <laughs> And he was absolutely horrified. I mean, you could just see the anguish in his face. <laughs> Both the baby on him. So he had to fix the baby back up there. <laughs> now, there's no question that we are all children. How little do we understand what is going on? How recently have we just begun to acknowledge that something else is going on? 
I mean, how many years did we go along thinking that what our body's eyes saw was all there was? We really believed that there was nothing else but what our body's eyes saw and that we could figure out everything that was going on in reality. We knew what all the rules were and so forth. Then the moment came and we were praying or we were meditating or we were in the depth of some sorrow or something. And something happened that did not fit into all this. How recently was that for all of us? And then something else happened. And then something else. And we said, there's something else going on. That was the first dawning. Because when this something would happen, all the laws that we thought were immutable would just be gently laid aside. So we are indeed little children. <clears throat> and it is clear that we will be given a stepping stone of concepts up which to walk. But the concepts will change. But we will be given the concept that will bring the truth into our heart and into our lives as fully as it can be brought into at our particular stage, then the concept will change and then the concept will change. So, for example, A Course in Miracles says there is, in fact, no decision. There is, in fact, no choice. Choice is an illusion. It says, however, you do not believe that. You really do believe that you can choose. You really do think that you can determine your future. Very well, Turn your choice over to God. Turn to God for the choice, for your decisions. Choose love instead of fear. Choose to be harmless rather than to hurt. If you believe in choice, then choose kindness and peace and love. Well, now that helps us. Because... Uh, one of the people that I've been speaking to, um, who uh, seems to be hearing uh, the voice of God quite distinctly, has been told that she is to ask anyone who wishes to ask questions, and that and that uh, that God will answer the question. God wants to answer our questions. So, hearing this, I immediately. Uh, gave her three questions. <laughs> and one of them was a sort of an abstract metaphysical question. And part of the answer contained this statement. It said, you have asked yourselves which came first, the chicken or the egg? I know the answer to that question but it is of no use to the farmer. <laughs> so in this first section, we will begin to read a little bit about structure. No, this isn't the absolute statement of how things are. But what of what use to us is it if we're having one of these awful, bloody, murderous fights with our spouse to know that God is one and God is all. 
Is that of any use to us at that moment? Can we, how can we use that to, to bring more love to our heart and treat this person more kindly? It's not that we don't have moments of seeing that and that those words come as close to it as, as we can come. The Course implies that really the only prayer that we ever need utter is the two words, God is. Simply say, God is, and be still. But it is obvious that we are very often not in a position where that is of immediate help to us. And so now we have been given another story. It has come in many different ways. We'll read this in just a minute, but let me let me uh, sort of summarize the story that I believe we're been, being given at this time. Because everyone asks, how did this happen? If God is love, and God wishes only happiness for his creation, how did this happen? All this carnage. And then as someone begins on a spiritual path, the question changes well, how was the ego formed? Why is there an ego? And so we're given a little story that brings the truth closer to our mind. And this is approximately how the story goes with different variations. That God created his child, his love, his meaning, his joy that God extended himself. Now already, of course, we notice that this is set in a bed of time. We've been told over and over there is no time. But we don't believe that. We really think there is time, and it's the ground of all being, that everything operates from time. So, of course, the story is set in time, and it seems sequential. So love extended itself. Well, we can see that anywhere. We, we see that we put a seed in the ground and a lovely plant springs up. And then in a year or two we see other plants just like it springing up. And only the water that came from the sky helped it. And then a couple years later we notice the whole hillside is covered with this lovely plant. Goes on and on. And this animal that we love so much gives birth. And now there are all these puppies running around. So the tree drops its seed. Isn't the seed the tree? The seed is the tree. The seed drops into the ground. It is nourished and up springs another tree. Is it another tree? Because from what did it spring? It sprung from the tree. But now there appears to be another tree, and another tree, and another tree. <coughs> so we get a glimpse of this, of this fact we've been told about. Yes, God is one. God is all. God is everywhere. And yet God extends his happiness and his joy and no, that doesn't make sense. So we are told things like, love unfolds upon itself forever. 
love looks gently upon itself and loves itself with an ever-increasing joy. So, that's what happened. In the beginning, we can say that's what happened. Now, the child of God, the extension of God, had a choice. Why? Why are we told that the child of God had a choice? Because we think choice has meaning. Have you seen the little, uh, have you seen people that train, they're actually people who, who train their dogs to say, I love you. Little dogs. Have you ever seen uh, little things on spots on television? There are some little dogs that can be trained to bark in such a way that it sounds like, I love you. Or you can train a parrot to say, I love you. And indeed, that's very cute for about three days. <laughs> and then what meaning does it have? Because that's all the parrot knows to say. Is it choosing to love you? No. So you have a child. And the child has a choice as to whether to love you. And the child chooses to love you. And that love has meaning. And so simply, so since we believe in choice, and indeed there is some truth in choice, there's no doubt about that, it is said to us that God's child had the choice of either accepting the abundant creation of God and all the joy and all the gifts of God or creating illusion. And so the child of God asked himself a question. This was the only mistake that was ever made. The child of God asked himself is there more than everything? Does attack have value? Which is the same question. And as soon as he asked that question, out of the darkness that was on the face of the deep, out of the void, out of nothing, out of illusion, sprang up this world. And looking at this world, the child of God was horrified and immediately felt guilty because he had asked to be deceived and he was. He thought he had created something real. It wasn't real. It was only a dream. Adam fell asleep. It was only a dream. And so immediately he wanted to get rid of this feeling of guilt and so through the ages we have seen one attempt that has not been successful. <coughs> and that is to blame Woden or Satan or demons. And there are thousands of names of this something to blame. But it doesn't quite stick. And one of the reasons that it didn't stick was that far more real to the child of God than Woden or Satan or Lucifer was the presence of God. The child God felt the presence of his father surrounding him in love and blessing him. And since this was far more real to him, he decided to blame God 
And that is what we do. We blame God for everything that's happening. Why did this baby die, God? Why did the children starve, God? And God waits patiently beside us and says, My child, this is only a dream. Wait to my love, because I love you so much. And you need not continue in this nightmare. And so this ego, this defense against God, developed over millions of years. And now we have it in the state that we have it. Quite complex, a series of defenses that seems to go on and on. But we have cried out now for help. The world has grown very tired and very sad. And it has cried out. And God has answered And the answer is coming in a thousand different ways, all the earth. Course in Miracles is just one. One of thousands of ways. Doesn't have to be in book form. But this way happens to be in book form. So let me read you this opening statement about how things are structured. Remembering, of course, that the only thing that will save us from this nightmare, and the thing that will save us from this nightmare, is peace. And so it is peace we want and not knowledge. But if knowledge allows us to put to rest our frantic questions as to why did God do this to us, then it's good that we have a little knowledge, and at least be told that the gorilla has been chased out of the bed. That's a true statement. The grill wasn't there. So we have been told, for example, that the world is over. The world is over. That's more understandable than saying there is no world. Revelation induces complete but temporary suspension of doubt and fear. It reflects the original form of communication between God and his creations, involving the extremely personal sense of creation sometimes sought in physical relationships. Physical closeness cannot achieve it. Miracles, however, are genuinely interpersonal and result in true closeness to others. Revelation unites you directly with God Miracles unite you directly with your brother. So it is saying, start with miracles. And it is pointing out one of the substitutes that we have made for our love of God and God's love for us. And that is our yearning for physical closeness. A little later on it simply says that this is a misinterpretation of a miracle impulse. That physical impulses are misinterpretations of of miracle impulses. doesn't mean that it's wrong or bad or we shouldn't do it. It's just simply pointing out what is this yearning that keeps us striving for more and more physical relationships. Trading partners over and over, looking over the shoulder of our latest partner to see another partner and so forth. What is that? It is our longing 
to wait in the arms of God. That's what it is. Miracles, it says, allows us true closeness to other people. So we say to God, I am cut off. No one's interests are the same as my interests. And all you have to do is look around and see how that awful, awful fact. No one wants what we want, ever. There's a little difference there. Even when friends get together, someone always wants to be talking. And the people who aren't talking are thinking about what they're going to talk about. And no one's, you know, no one's interests are the same. And so we create this substitute, which, of course, in Miracles points out, is the showcase of the ego. It is the ego's grand defense. And the Course calls it special relationships. And it's quite amusing when you see this defense, when you begin to notice it, as I know most of you have. These looks that you get in a magazine, you know, the power of, of the mystery of difference and separation. <clears throat> What the uh, what the young lady on the uh, on the uh, page has that you don't have, you know. My God, she's got lips. <laughs> lips. Oh my God, lips. <laughs> and then then there's and then there's the parts of the body we don't have. <laughs> right? I mean, if this had true power, then when the Dallas Cowboys got in position, the whole other side of the, of the stadium would just faint. Oh, my God! They're bending over. <laughs> so, as, as, as little kids, we were taught to go running after this that our brother's body contains something that we don't have. And what is not stated is, we must kill our brother to get it. So now we're a predator. If you will look at these sexy looks, they are predatory looks. Clearly, they're predatory looks. Revelation unites you directly with God. Miracles unite you directly with your brother. Neither emanates from consciousness, but both are experienced there. So the word consciousness in A Course in Miracles is simply, uh, it's, it's used as sort of the place where things happen. Consciousness is the state that induces action, though it does not inspire it. You are free to believe what you choose, and what you do attests to what you believe. If you want to know what you believe, just look at what you do. Just look at how you spend your time. Revelation is intensely personal and cannot be meaningful, meaningfully translated. That is why any attempt to describe it in words is impossible. Revelation induces only experience. You see, this is why it is so silly to argue about whether or not we believe in God. It doesn't make any difference whether someone believes in God. It only makes a difference if we have experienced God. I can remember when I first started reading A Course in Miracles, and I realized that it was written in the first person, 
and I realized that the first person was clearly Jesus, I went through a stage in which I proselytized. I thought this was just mind-boggling that Jesus had evidently written a book. <laughs> you know what happened? As I continued to read it, and I realized that Jesus had written it, I stopped proselytizing. There was no need for me to say this to anybody. Because if God could come to me in this personal way, in this most personal ways for me, because I love books, then he certainly did not need me to go proselytizing. Revelation induces only experience. Miracles, on the other hand, induce action. They are more useful now because of their interpersonal nature. In this phase of learning, working miracles is important because freedom from fear cannot be thrust upon you. It does no good for us to ask that God remove our fear because Fear is merely a symptom of something that we are believing that is not true. And so that is where the correction must take place. Not in getting rid of the symptom or the alarm, the information that lets us know what we are doing. That is why it is pointless to ask God about what's going to happen or to ask God to make a certain thing happen in the future. Because all we are really doing is exercising our mistrust of God. We say, God, now I want to know what's going to happen about such and such. Meaning, I'm, I, I think you're capable of making a big mistake here. <laughs> Why else would we be at? If we know that God is with us, that love surrounds us, if we believe the promise that every need, every true need we have will be met, why would we possibly ask about the future? So we're only doing it to try to get rid of our fear, which is merely a symptom of our, our unfaithfulness, our lack of faith, which is okay, but it's the unfaithfulness that needs to be looked at, not the fear. Revelation is literally unspeakable because it is an experience of unspeakable love. All should be reserved for revelation, to which it is perfectly and correctly applicable. It is not appropriate for miracles, because a state of awe is worshipful, implying that one of a lesser order stands before his creator. You are a perfect creation, and should experience awe only in the presence of the creator of perfection. The miracle is therefore a sign of love among equals. Equals should not be in awe of one another, because awe implies inequality. Now, up till now, we've simply been talking about the difference between revelation, which is as close as we get to our original form of communication with God. And incidentally, when I talked last week about direct communication with God and the Course in Miracles, dissuades us from making that our goal. I was not talking about channeling. 
Channeling has nothing. Channeling is in the category of a miracle. It is an expression of love that helps us out, brings us closer to another person. But that has nothing to do with direct communication with God, which is absolutely wordless and indescribable. When you have felt the presence of God, you will not have words to describe it. You will be utterly at loss to, to describe the experience. And that's how you will know that you have felt the presence of God, is that it is not comparable to anything else. So that's what's been discussed up till now. Now comes something that would appear to be at odds with certain Christian teachings of our time. It is up to each individual to, to determine for himself as to whether or not this is at odds as to what he thinks the Bible is saying. Equals should not be in awe of one another because all implies inequality. It is therefore an inappropriate reaction to me, says Jesus. Awe. Awe is an inappropriate re reaction to me. An elder brother, which incidentally Paul called Jesus, an elder brother is entitled to respect for his greater experience and obedience for his greater wisdom. He is also entitled to love because he is a brother and to devotion if he is devoted. It is only my devotion that entitles me to yours. There is nothing about me that you cannot attain. I have nothing that does not come from God. The difference between us now is that I have nothing else. This leaves me in a state which is only potential in you. No man cometh unto the Father but by me does not mean that I am in any way separate or different from you except in time. And time does not really exist. So let's just talk about that just for a second. I stand here because I believe that by teaching what I want to learn, it will be strengthened in me. You have come here to hear words that resonate with something that you feel deep within you. You therefore believe that this body standing before you can do something that will be of value to you. But let me, and it seems quite personal, you hear my voice and you think that as you listen to my voice, I say things that bring up the kind of strengths and emotions that you want in your life. And this is a personal experience. But let me tell you that it pales into insignificance compared to the personal experience of Jesus. Now, Jesus... Now, you see, but what's happened is in the, in the Christian movement is that that it seems like the word Jesus has sort of been co-opted by a group or a number of groups. And they're the ones that put them on the bumper stickers and the billboard signs and pass them out in leaflets and all this stuff and knock on our doors and say things uh, using that word. Now, we make exactly the same mistake as some of those people may be making if we throw out Jesus 
in our lives. If we do not think that we have a personal guardian that walks beside us. If you haven't had that experience, I, I urge you to begin trying to have it. You can turn specifically to Jesus and receive instruction and help in a far more personal way than you can hearing my voice. You can literally have the feeling of, of Jesus taking your hand and lifting you over some difficulty. Far more personal than that, than anything that, that uh, could happen in this room. We throw out so much because of our fear of being thought ridiculous. We don't want to appear like those other people, those Jesus freaks. But something's going on here. Anyone, any of you who have read this book, have studied this, know that this contains no ego. This isn't the only book that contains no ego. This is not the only thing that's going on here. But this certainly contains no ego. How did this happen? How could something so pure as this come to us? Surely the Sermon on the Mount is the same thing. Surely the love poem of Paul is the same thing. How does this happen? Where did these people go that they can that they can minister unto us so personally? They didn't go anywhere. They didn't go anywhere. If you need to have Jesus appear before you, it will happen. Just don't tell Jesus, how he is to help you. Now, by Jesus, I'm, you, I'm simply saying this most personal of ministerings unto you. It will be exactly what you need. Don't tell God what it is you need, what direction it should come from. But for God's sake, open your heart and receive the very personal help you can receive. Then he goes on to say this. <clears throat> Having said, uh, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, does not mean that I am in any way separate or different from you except in time, and time does not really exist. The statement is more meaningful in terms of a vertical rather than a horizontal axis. You stand below me, and I stand below God. In the process of rising up, I am higher because without me, the distance between God and man would have be too great for you to encompass. I bridge the distance as an elder brother to you on the one hand and as a son of God on the other. My devotion to my brothers has placed me in charge of the sonship, which I render complete because I share it. This may appear to contradict the statement, I and my Father are one, but there are two parts to the statement in recognition that the Father is greater. Now, there isn't much of this kind of stuff in A Course in the Miracles, this sort of how things are structured. It appears 
mostly in here, a little bit in the manual. Some of it's in the uh, workbook. But it says later, since you have asked how things are structured, here are some statements that you may find useful. So we turn to help where we can, because what we usually do is we do not take a small step thinking that we must take a large one. And so we leave ourselves in distress during the day or in the marriage or in the job or in the illness because we're not willing to take the little step that we see we could take thinking that we must take a big step. Yes, God is all. God is one. Yes, you are an indistinguishable part of God. Yes, there is no time. Yes, one brother includes all brothers. But how often is that absolutely of no use to us? Because of some situation that we've gotten ourselves in. So along comes Jesus, who can come to you in this very, very personal way. Oftentimes, I get myself in such a state that all I can do is just look at it. I can't, I can't say any good thoughts or do anything on my behalf. I have to just sort of plop myself down in a, in a chair and just look at the misery that I'm in and remind myself that God indeed wants me to be happy, that he has indeed placed a little step before me that I can take. He has not left me in an impossible situation. There is a way out of this misery. He does not want me to suffer. Let me look around and take the little step. That's all this concept of Jesus is. It's the little step. But it is so real when you take it. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. Now I'm walking. I'm talking to my, my, my brother and my sister with my mind stayed on Jesus. If you're, if you, once you feel Jesus' presence, if you don't get rid of it too quickly, if you start to carry it with you, it will be far more real than the encounters that you'll have, you see. Revelations are indirectly inspired by me because I am close to the Holy Spirit and alert to the revelation readiness of my brothers. I can thus bring down to them more than they can draw down to themselves. The Holy Spirit meditates higher to lower communication, keeping the direct channel from God to you open for revelation. Revelation is not reciprocal. It proceeds from God to you, but not from you to God. Now, some people who have come from a metaphysical background don't like statements like this. They say, I am God. Well, if they are seeing that, they're not going to get angry about statements like this. I mean, you know, it's, uh, the statement is simply, if this is the truth coming to us in a way that we can use it. And so, it, it often triggers a great deal of anxiety for someone to say to himself, I am God. It's like having a dream, and there, the figure in the dream, a friend of mine had a dream a little while back in which he was a, a retarded child on a ship, and he was ta being taken care of by the captain. And uh, so, if the dreamer of the dream could come into the dream and say to the little retarded child, 
you are the captain. You are the boat. You are the uh, ocean and so forth. You are everything that you see. The little retarded child on the ship might not find that helpful. Maybe there needs to be an intermediary step, and so often there does. Because it is the mind of the dreamer that is the retarded child. But in the dream, the dreamer doesn't know that, even though it's a fact. The miracle minimizes the need for time. In the longitudinal or horizontal plane, the recognition of the equality of the members of the sonship <coughs> appears to involve almost endless time. And this is what discourages us so often. We see what little progress we make and we think, oh my God, this is going to take forever. And, we, and I, one of the questions that I hear Course in Miracles students saying over and over again, one of the questions they ask is, am I going to have to come back? <laughs> and they all oh, they don't want to come back you know? so I have to go through this again because it looks like you make such little progress well here's the answer to that fear the miracle entails a sudden shift from horizontal to vertical perception this involves an interval from which the giver and receiver both emerge farther along in time than they would be otherwise. The miracle thus has the unique property of abolishing time to the extent that it renders the interval of time it spans unnecessary. There is no relationship between the time a miracle takes and the time it covers. The miracle substitutes for learning. So that means that just one moment in which we attempt to love somebody substitutes for a thousand years of pouring over books and putting knowledge in our head and having all these metaphysical truths and going to meeting after meeting and seminar after seminar and all the stuff you know we've always done. It spans it and erases the need for that. Just one attempt to love somebody. It does so by the underlying recognition of perfect equality of giver and receiver on which the miracle rests. The miracle shortens time by collapsing it, thus eliminating certain intervals within it. It does this, however, within the larger the larger temporal sequence. So you're not suddenly going to find yourself in 2007, you know. That's not the sense in which it collapses the need for time. But what will happen, I promise you, if you can't remember it having happened, happened to you recently, is that you suddenly will find that you have just come a long, long way. Just suddenly you realize that you've just, you're just eons past where you were and you don't understand what you did to deserve it. <laughs> you just say, God, what did I do? This is so so much easier now. And of course it's what you didn't do 
that allowed that to happen. It's because you forgot to judge that the miracle happened. Okay, well, let's do the, the lesson for today. The lesson for today is, I am never upset for the reason I think. That's true on any level you want to consider it. We found that to be true over and over again. We think someone meant one thing and we realize they meant something else. It's true on that very initial level. It's true on every level. I'm never upset for the reason I think because there is no reason for me to be upset. <laughs> so whatever reason I'm assigning to it, it's incorrect. <laughs> this idea, like the preceding one, can be used with any person, situation, or event you think is causing you pain. Apply it specifically to whatever you believe is the cause of your upset. Using the description of the feeling in whatever term seems accurate to you. The upset may seem to be fear, worry, depression, anxiety, anger, hatred, jealousy, or any number of forms, all of which will be perceived as different. This is not true. However, until you learn that form does not matter, each form becomes a proper subject for the exercises for the day. You see, here's another way in which we are children and we are being talked to like children. It's nothing wrong to be... Uh, this is a hopeful, wonderful thing because we, don't, we know that we're, we're not making very good progress so often. So here is a little step we can take, you see. It says it doesn't matter whether you think it's hatred or jealousy or depression or worry or anxiety or what you think it is. It's all the same, but we think it makes a big, big difference because this is jealousy. <coughs> You know, and my spouse is jealous of me, and I overcame that seven years ago. I'm not jealous anymore. I'm so much more superior to my spouse. I would never get jealous. But I've just gotten irritated about her being jealous. So there's no difference. You see, we think the form makes some difference. It makes no difference. <laughs> You will learn that form does not matter. Each form becomes a proper subject for the exercises for the day. Applying the same idea to each of them separately is the first step in ultimately recognizing they are all the same. So it's our carrying a single state of mind into everything that happens that allows us to see that everything is the same. So we make a single decision. For example, today I will hurt no one in my thought or in my life. Today I will hurt no one in my thought or in my life. And we apply that to everything. We apply it to our fantasies. We apply it to the people at the office. We apply it to our children. We apply it to the dog. When using the idea for today for a specific perceived cause of an upset in any form, use both the name of the form in which you see the upset and the cause which you ascribe to it. For example, I am not angry at blank for the reason I think. I am not afraid of blank for the reason I think. So it's both the emotion 
You state the emotion and what you perceive to be the cause. But again, this should not be substituted for practice periods in which you first search your mind for sources of upset in which you believe, and forms of upset which you think result. And these exercises, more than in the preceding ones, you may find it, find it hard to be indiscriminate and to avoid giving greater weight to some subjects than to others. It might help to precede the exercises with the statement, there are no small upsets, which happens to be the uh, title of next week's discussion, so we won't, I won't go into that. They are all equally disturbing to my peace of mind. Then examine your mind for whatever is distressing you, regardless of how much or how little you think it is doing so. You may also find yourself willing to apply today's idea to some perceived sources of upset, more willing, less willing, excuse me. You may also find yourself less willing to apply today's idea to some perceived sources of upset than to others. If this occurs, think first of this. I cannot keep this form of upset and let the others go. For the purposes of these exercises, then, I will regard them all as the same. This is the key to the peace of God. We think there is something we can handle. We think there is one little upset that we're supposed to deal with. If we have one judgment, we have this world. It all comes in the same package. No matter what end of the stick, or as one guy said, uh, uh, it doesn't matter which end of the vacuum cleaner you pick up. <laughs> you, you've, got, you've got all the dirt there anyway, do you see? So if you just you have one judgment, you're going to have all the other judgments. If you just think one thing was unfair as you go through the day, just one little thing that happened, you have now got this world of carnage. Cannot be avoided. Then search your mind for no more than a minute or so and try to identify a number of different forms of upset that are disturbing you, regardless of the relative importance you may give them. Apply the idea for today to each of them, using the name of both, of both the source of the upset as you perceive it and of the feeling as you experience it. Further examples are, I'm not worried about blank for the reason I think. I'm not depressed about blank for the reason I think. Three or four times during the day is enough. We'll do that in just a moment. Okay, you can open your eyes. See, this goes back to what we were originally discussing. We make this dream, we make this world, and now it appears to be attacking us. And now we think it is the cause of our depression, of our anger. I'm not angry at the weather for the reason I think. I'm not angry at, the, at my child's temper tantrums for the reason I think. If you practice with a little bit of earnestness and concentration, surely you felt a relaxing. You felt yourself relax a little bit. 
You're letting go of the, the actual chains that bind you to this world. The chains are the justification. We think we are justified for being depressed or angry. Let those go and your freedom is automatic. Say to yourself, it has no reason. There is no cause. I am not justified and do not want to be. I would rather be happy than be right. <laughs>